If you would open your Bibles this morning to Romans 6, we're looking at 5 through 11. And we do have a feast of a passage here this morning. You know when the pastor says there's a feast, you're not supposed to look at the clock in a sermon. The fact that there's cedar pollen, so my my voice is a bit scratchy, you do have that going for you uh, this morning. People who move from out of state to this area think that they have a cold for about two months, but it's actually just cedar pollen uh, aggravating us. And we learn to live with it because it's such a blessed place to live and a, a great place to be here on the Lord's Day this morning. No longer slaves to sin. Romans 6, uh, 5 through 11. But I'm going to start back in verse 1 because Paul starts there. I want to read all the way through the passage so you get the context. You get to see right in 1 and 2, uh, verses 1 and 2, what he's doing here. And Paul's very logical. He builds his argument logically. It's like going up steps. Each verse is a step as you go up. And then you'll get to the top and then go across and he's got another set of steps. And that's the whole book of Romans uh, as we go through it here. Romans 6, 1 through 11. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. I told you about a month ago when we started Romans 6, and then we had some special messages over the holidays. I told you then that we... We're still looking at that same section of Paul's letter that started back in chapter 5. Chapters 5 through chapter 8 is all about the assurance that we have as believers because of the justification that Christ has given us. He has died in our place. We have been declared righteous. We have received His righteousness. We, of course, are still sinners, but when we trust in Him through faith alone, As our Savior, His righteousness gets applied to our account. It gets reckoned. It gets credited to our account. Our sin gets put on His account. And that's what He died for on the cross. He was the atonement for our sin. And Paul developed all of that in chapters 1 through 4. Chapter 5 now, he's going to start to say, what does that mean for us now? Well, one of the things that it means is that we can be assured of our salvation. We can be assured of our justification. And he's developing this argument over these chapters. He got into chapter 6 here. And the question arises, 
okay, now we've been justified. Now we're assured of our salvation. We're no longer in Adam. We've now been transferred to the realm of Christ. And God's grace abounded all the more because we were sinners. And yet, even though we were sinners, God's grace abounded to us, abounded to the Jews who had faith in Christ in his day, abounded all the way through the centuries up to today, every time God saves somebody. Well, the question then is, let's just go on sinning and make God look good. Is that a good idea? Is that the Christian life? A lot of people believe that today. They teach that. It doesn't really matter if you sin. It gives God a chance to show off his grace. Paul says, may it never be. It cannot be. It's not possible. Don't ever, 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 ever think it. I mean, that's as strong as he can say it in Greek. God forbid in King James. That's pretty strong in English. God forbid that it would ever happen, that we would ever think that way. Then he goes on to give his first proof of how we know that's not right. In verses 3 and 4, which we looked at, the first illustration, the first proof is to say, remember your baptism. Remember what baptism is. It's a proof, Paul's saying here, not, not baptism being a proof, but he's using it, the illustration as a proof to back up what he's saying. Our baptism pictures something. It pictures the union that we have with Christ. It doesn't put us into Christ. We don't teach, and the Bible doesn't teach. The baptism does that. That happens when we have faith. That happens because God does it. He puts us into Christ. But baptism symbolizes what happens on the inside. It's an outside symbol. It's an act that we are commanded to do to show that something has happened on the inside, spiritually speaking. So by getting baptized, we now show our spiritual union with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. That's what he's saying in verses 3 and 4. They would have looked back to their baptism and remembered, yes, that's what it symbolized. Yes, I was saved just before I was baptized. And that's what it symbolized. And I showed everybody that testimony that I'm now one with Christ. I'm a new person. And Paul says, you know, see how he finishes verse 4. That's all, all that happened inside of us. And we did that as an example to show people what happened through baptism so that we too might walk in newness of life. You can't continue in sin because you're a new person, he says. And you stood before all these people and got baptized. You gave your testimony. Don't you remember what that symbolized? Remember your baptism, he says. Well, now he's going to continue building on that argument, especially off this phrase, walk in newness of life. That's really our goal as Christians. We are now to walk and newness of life. We're a new creation in Christ. We're not the old person that we were before we were saved. We're something new. And Christ tells us exactly how we're supposed to walk. He's given us the whole New Testament. He's given us all the Old Testament to support that. And it's not as if we don't have enough information. The thing that we need, though, is to be reminded of these truths and encouraged to obey these truths, exhorted by both preaching, teaching, and your own personal Bible study. So here's what Paul is doing now in verses 5 through 11. He's going to give us two sanctifying consequences. There's two consequences of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And they're sanctifying consequences. Sometimes when we think of consequences, we only use that term to mean something bad. If you drive too fast, the consequence is you're going to get a ticket or have a wreck. 
But I'm using the, the idea of consequence here, and the definition being the conclusion reached by a line of reasoning, an inference. There, there's two conclusions that come about as a result of being united with Christ. Remember, he's talking about union with Christ to remind us of who we are now. We can't go on sinning. We can't use that excuse that God's grace would abound all the more if we sin. Every time we sin, He forgives us, looks great. No, Paul says, that's not how it works. You're a new person, and because you've been united with Christ, which proves you're a new person, now look at these consequences. He's going back to the fact that we're somebody new, and that has done something for us. What are these two consequences? Well, first of all, the first one, is that being united with Christ in His death and resurrection has broken the power of sin. In verses 5-7, through he says that it's broken the power of sin. Sin has no power over us. It has no control over us. We're not in bondage to sin anymore. Adam was in bondage to sin after the fall. Until God did something, until God acted for him and sacrificed that animal and taught him, of course, the gospel through all of that. Of course, he gave the gospel even to Eve, didn't he? He said, look, there's going to be a seed that comes from you that will crush the serpent's head. And we see that developed all throughout the Bible. That there's one coming who will break this power, the power of death and the power of sin. Here's how Paul develops that argument. Verse 5. For, you just stop right there. The word for is explaining what he just said. This newness of life. So he's attaching these verses to what he's just said about the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. He's giving us a conditional statement. If that's the case, and it is for every believer. Every believer has been united with Christ. All believers have been put into Christ at the very moment that they have faith. The moment they have true saving faith, they've been united with Christ. And when they come to saving faith, that's because God has made that person born again. God has done it. God has made them born again. They have faith. They're put into Christ. A union. Uh, The word here is an interesting word. Sometimes Paul uses different words like identification or, or participation. Here it's united. And this word was sometimes used in the ancient Greek culture to speak of putting two plants together. And as they grew, they would grow together. And, and they would, the, the, the ancients believed that these plants would almost share some similarities because they're right next to each other. I don't think Paul has that specifically in mind, but you can see the idea of this word. Two things put together, sharing. Christ is in us. We're in Christ. We are unified with him we are united with him he's still christ and we're still us but there is a spiritual what the theologians call a mystical meaning you can't explain it that's what mystical means you can't explain it down as as clear as we would like it but there is a mystical union happening there when we're saved with christ our life is now placed in the realm of christ and his domain we've been transferred out of darkness into the realm, his kingdom of Christ. And so Paul says, if that's the case, then were you also united with him in the likeness of his death? The likeness of his death. 
How did he die? He died on the cross. Okay, what do you mean, Paul? Because we're not dying on the cross. Christ paid for our sins on the cross. We didn't do that for anyone. Well, notice the word likeness. Every word is important in Scripture. Down to the prepositions. Often theology is determined based on the preposition used. And in this case, it's a specific Greek word that translates as likeness. He says, it's not exact in other words that we die like he died, but it's in the likeness of his death. It's very similar. Christ's death was real. It was physical. It it was atoning. Ours is not like that at all. Our death, he's speaking of the spiritual death that we have when we come to Christ. He's just used all of that illustration there with regards to baptism. So we're not physically dying right now as Christ did. But he's saying it's like that. The the death we died is spiritual. So it's, it's not like his in every respect. But if we're united with him, in some sense we did die. In some sense he's going to continue on. Our old life is dead. John Calvin says about this part of the verse here in verse 5. For as he, Christ, by death died in the flesh which he had assumed from us, so we also die in ourselves so that we may live in him. So the comparison here is he actually died, we're united with him, and we died spiritually when we come to him, and that atonement gets applied to us in our lives. But he died on the cross 2,000 years ago. So if that's the case, Paul said, and it is, he says if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, that leads to the logical conclusion, certainly we shall also be and the likeness of his resurrection. Again, this idea of likeness going to the second part of the verse. He speaks of a surety here now of our physical resurrection of the body when Christ returns for his elect. When Christ comes back, this will certainly happen, he says. Certainly. It's for sure. So the death is a spiritual death so that we can have a physical resurrection. We'll be raised with him, in other words. We'll be raised like him in a physical body. Because the Christian is united with Christ in his death, we know that Christ was raised again, and it follows then, therefore, we will be raised again. So all he's doing now is just setting the big picture. He's setting this big picture. He's saying the end goal is our resurrection. Then we'll glorify God forever and ever with a perfect resurrected body. We know that's going to happen. We can rest assured of that. That's not even under discussion, he's saying. Certainly it's going to happen. Our resurrection, which is to come in the future, is like Christ's resurrection. A new body that will be used to glorify God forever and ever. This future promise of the resurrection in the believer enables us. Now here's what he's getting at. That's what he's going to go into after this verse. If we think about that resurrection, it enables us now, Paul says, to live a life for him. We know he's promised us a resurrection. We know we've been justified. He will make sure we get to the end if we're truly his. He will persevere us. He will make sure we get there. Knowing that, that has implications on this life now. It's not all pie in the sky. It's not all do whatever you want now in this life and just wait around till the resurrection. Just eat spiritual junk food and sit on the spiritual couch your whole life and do nothing and don't grow and don't learn until Christ comes back? Not at all, Paul says, because we know there's a real resurrection coming. 
where we'll glorify God forever. That should have an implication on the here and the now. Knowing that, knowing what is to come, gives us the ability to live for God now, looking forward to that future certain event. Lately, we've got some weddings happening in the church. Seems like January is wedding month, at least for me, as I counsel and get ready for these weddings. And when a couple is engaged, they're not quite married yet. They're looking forward to that date. They're looking at it out in the future, and they can't wait until it happens. But it does cause a change in their life, doesn't it? They have to start thinking about things differently. What about finances? Where are we going to live when we're married? How's that going to work? What about income? And what about insurance? And what about these things and vehicles and so on and so on? They know that it's not yet time to be married, but there has been a change of thinking. They're no longer out there looking for another spouse. There has been a change in the way that they live their life. Well, just the same happens in believers. Just like believers looking forward to the resurrection, it changes our life now, even though it's still out there at some point in the future. It's not just something we sit around and wait on and say, God, we'll just wait on you. No, we are living a godly life as a result of who we are in Christ. So now he builds upon that. Verse 6, knowing this. So he's building upon the fact the resurrection's coming. Now that means we know something right now about this life. Knowing this, that's a way of saying we all understand this. At least in his day, they all knew it. And he's just reminding them. Today, people don't know this because they haven't been taught the Bible. He said, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. Now we're going to spend a bit talking about this little section of verse 6. It's so important to understand. In fact, if you understand this, everything else is pretty easy. Knowing this, our old man was crucified. Now, some translations say old self. What is self? What is a self? That's hard to explain. But we know what an old man is. We know what a man is. That's a person. And old here, which by the way, that's the actual literal translation, old man. The old man. Old describes who we were in Adam before coming to Christ. Our old person. The person we were in Adam. The unregenerate person. The man who lived under this tyranny of sin and death. The death is coming. The judgment is coming because we're in Adam. We're not in Christ. If we're an unbeliever, we're in Adam. Paul talked about that in in Romans chapter 5. This is our unregenerate self. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, my old humanity is what he's talking about. The, The man that was born under the law, born in sin, born under condemnation. The man that sinned with Adam and therefore reaped all the consequences of Adam's sin. The man who was under the wrath and condemnation of God. That's the old man. That old man, Paul says, was crucified with Christ. You know what crucified means? He was put to death. He was killed. The old man that you once were before Christ has been put to death. It's very clear in the Greek, the aorist, the past tense. It's happened at a point in the past. It's done. It's over with. The old man is dead. The old man that you once were is dead. There's no more old man. He's gone. We are new. There's the new man now. The old man is gone. He's been crucified with 
Christ. We're born again. We have faith. We are put into Christ. He declares us righteous. He takes away our sin. And he begins now this process of sanctification. But that process starts with the fact that the old man is dead. Don't start thinking, well, there's this old man inside and there's this new man and they're battling. It's like the good angel and the bad angel on my shoulder. And they're fighting it out. I wonder who's going to win today. I'm going to feed the good man. I'm going to feed the old man. No, no, that's not how it goes. Paul starts out by saying the old man is dead. And people have gotten this wrong sometimes in theological circles. Uh, One example is the Dutch Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper taught that the Christian's always digging the old man's grave until we die. He's not yet dead, but we're getting ready for him to die at the resurrection. So he's digging the grave, he says. Martin Lloyd-Jones argues a lot with Abraham Kuyper on this. But why would we dig a grave for somebody who's already dead? He's already dead, the Bible says. He's died. He's been buried. He is gone. There's also this teaching out there called trichotomy. Trichotomy teaches something like this, that you're made up of three parts, but that's only after you've been saved. Before you're saved, you have a body and a soul. And then when you get saved, you get the spirit added on. The spirit is holy. The spirit is something given by God, they would say. And your soul, that's your human mind. That's your fleshly mind. And so you have your spirit and your soul duking it out. And they say you have to counsel the spirit and not the soul. Don't memorize verses. Don't do counseling homework. That's very mental, they say. You've got to open up God's light and shine it on the spirit. Sounds very holy. The problem is that's not the case. First of all, the Bible tells us there's only two parts to the person. The soul and spirit are just different terms to talk about the immaterial part. There's the immaterial part. And so in the Christian life, the soul is not just the old man. The old man is who you were, the whole person before you came to Christ. The old man is dead. He's been crucified with Christ. If we're trichotomous, we would say, oh, part of us has died. The soul is gone. The old soul has been crucified and put to death. No, it doesn't work like that. This is just talking about the whole person, the person you once were. Everything about you is not like it is now. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's past tense. He's not saying I'm crucifying my flesh every day. He's not saying I take up my cross and crucify my flesh. There is that teaching where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. But he's saying you put your selfish desires to death. Paul says, I have been crucified. My whole person has already been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I'm not the same anymore. I'm not the same. I can't talk like that. I can't talk like there's a part of the old person and a part of the new duking it out in my life. Go to Colossians 3.9. Again, Paul, same author. He now repeats this in a different way to the Colossians, but it's the same teaching. Notice it's just a matter of fact, a matter of fact. Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man. So now he's looking more at it from our point of view. And Romans, he's saying from God's point of view, God put that old man to death. Here he's saying, remember, you put that old man off. You, You took it off. You threw it off with its evil practices. And you have put on the new man, 
past tense. The old man's been put off. The new man's been put on. And now the new man continues to be renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So this new person in Christ that you are is growing, is being renewed, is, is growing more and more. You don't start out on day one as a Christian being a complete new man. Paul said his mission was to go proclaim the gospel and make everybody complete in Christ. There's a growth that needs to happen until you die and go to be with Christ. Now, pastor, are you telling me that we're not to put off the old and put on the new? I mean, that is the biblical counseling passage, isn't it? Doesn't Ephesians 4 say that? Let's go to Ephesians 4. Because if Ephesians 4 contradicts Romans and Colossians, we've got a problem, don't we? We've got a problem, but I think you know that's not going to be the case. Let me explain what he's doing. Ephesians 4 sounds very similar to Colossians. Ephesians 4.22, he says, To lay aside in reference to your former conduct. So now he's not stating about something that happened in the past. He's saying, here's something you need to be doing in your life right now. Lay it aside. Lay aside what? The former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Paul contradicting himself? No, you already know that because the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So what is he doing here? Well, if you dig into this text in Ephesians, you see that he's talking here with verbs that have to do with clothing. Over in Romans, he just says the old man's dead. He uses a very specific word. He's been crucified. He's been put on the cross. He's been killed. Here though, he says, take off these clothes. They're old clothes. They're nasty clothes. They're rotten clothes. Lay them aside. Take them off and put on the new. In other words, he's saying that we still have influences and desires that are similar to the old man. If you struggle with certain sins before you were saved, you might struggle with those temptations now. Of course, it's a better fight now. We have the spirit. We have the word. We have all this help. And it shouldn't be the exact same struggle. It's different. Our relationship with sin is different than it once was. But there's still this desire to go back and put on some of those dirty clothes. We're not the same inside. Our, our body, our minds, everything has been renewed. It's the new man. But we look over there and say, maybe it would be nice if we go back and put on some of those smelly, rotten grave clothes. That kind of felt good sometimes. I'm kind of down right now. Somebody said something mean to me. I'm going to go back and I'm going to put those clothes on. And Paul says, don't do that. Lay those aside. Actively putting off those desires. Put off he says, the former conduct. He's not saying you're not a new person. He's saying live like you are the new person and put off those desires and that former conduct that you used to do. Just like when somebody is released from prison. You know, it's pretty common for people, sometimes they've been in prison a long time to want to go back there. You got three meals a day, you get to watch TV, you don't have to work, you don't have to do anything. Some criminals will go commit crimes just to go back to prison. Why is that? Because it was comfortable there. Life wasn't so bad. They look back and they look over the prison fence and say, you know, wearing those prison clothes, not such a big deal. I can do that if my life is taken care of. I don't have to work for it. Paul says, don't do that. Don't look across and see that life and want to go back to it. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it as an illustration of two fields. There's, there's Satan's field over here, and you're working in that field. You're a laborer for Satan. Then there's a road running down the middle, and there's another field over here, and that's God's field. God picks you up from Satan's field when you're saved. He puts you over in his field. But every once in a while, you look over the road, and there's someone over there called Satan, and he's saying, come back, come back, come back. Come back and see what it feels like to have your desires met. Well, Paul says that this old man, though, is dead. And Ephesians 4 is just saying, don't try to go back. Don't even try to put on the clothes. Back to Romans 6 then. So what is he saying here? Well, the purpose in verse 6 of that old man dying is so that, or in order that, our body of sin might be done away with. Paul's not saying that our physical body here is sinful. Sometimes when we read about Paul talking about the flesh, and sometimes monastics in the past, people who start monasteries and become a monk, they think, well, the, the flesh is evil. The flesh is evil. I'm going to put that flesh to death by joining a monastery, denying all the things and the comforts of the world. That doesn't work. Guess what happens in the monasteries? Sin homosexuality, all of these different sins that you can read about in church history. So the body of sin here is not the fact that your body is sinful. It's not the Gnostic beliefs, the Platonic after Plato, the belief that the, the matter of this world is sinful. And the spiritual is all we care about. Remember, we're getting a resurrected body. Christ got a resurrected body. Christ lived in the flesh and he was without sin. So the body itself isn't inherently sinful. It becomes sinful because we were in Adam. His sin gets applied to us and we carry that on every generation through inherited sin. Now we become sinful. The body itself was created good when God created Adam and Eve. So what does he mean by body of sin? It's what he often means when he uses that term flesh. The the sinful desires which get enacted by what? Our body. Our body acts out our sinful desires, those internal temptations, they start inside. But guess what gives birth to sin? When we go after those things, and now we act upon those desires. We give birth to sin by doing the actual sin in act, in deed, in speech. That is what he's talking about. He's focusing on the body. It's just another way of saying the old man. He's saying the body which you commit sins with, that body is done away with. It's done away with. That person that you were has been crucified and done away with, annulled. He has no power. He has no rights. He is gone. He's dead. He's dead. So that, now continuing on this stepladder here of Paul's argument, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We would no longer be slaves to sin. That's exactly what we were before Christ. All those in Adam are slaves to sin. The redeemed person is no longer in slavery to sin with his person, with his body, with his mind. He's free now because you were a slave to sin. You didn't think about it as an unbeliever. You probably didn't sit around saying, man, I can't believe I'm in bondage to sin. You know what you do as an unbeliever? You just run into sin. The only thing that hinders you is getting caught. I don't want the government to find out, so I'm not going to do those things. I have to go to prison. I don't want my spouse to find out, so I'm going to hide this stuff. All the stuff you did, 
You did what you wanted as you didn't get caught, as long as the hindrances were there to keep you from doing something that sent you maybe to prison. But Paul says we're no longer slaves to sin. We have a new master. A new man has a new master. The old master, the old master, we can say it's Satan, but it's also sin and death. Sin and death was the old master. There's a new master, Christ. We're no longer subject to that slavery of sin and death anymore, Paul says. That person is dead and they can't be subject to slavery because they don't live anymore. You're a new person in Christ. John MacArthur says, Paul does not teach that a Christian is no longer capable of committing sin, but that he no longer is under the compulsion and tyranny of sin. It's not that sin made us do something. It's that sin was as far as we could go. That's it. We are always in this realm of sin. We can't exit the realm of sin until we trust in Christ. And now we're in Christ. We're in his kingdom. We're in the domain of sin. Until then, when you're saved, you're under Christ. No longer a slave to sin. Remember, if you read Pilgrim's Progress, he's going along this walk, Christian is. And he comes to this demon. Not Satan, but the lieutenant of Satan called Apollyon. And Apollyon is trying to tempt Christian to come back to his domain. He's saying, you are mine. You need to come back. You need to come back to my domain. And here's what Christian says. I was born indeed in your dominions, but your service was hard. Your wages such as a man could not live on. But I have let myself to another even to the king of princes. O thou destroying Apollyon, to speak the truth, I like his service, this new king. I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company and country better than thine. And therefore, leave off to persuade me further. I am his servant. I will follow him. That's why Paul says this. You need to know that. You need to know You're not under the domain of sin. Which means every time you sin, you're choosing to do it. You're not in bondage. The chain's been cut. You've been set free. But as a Christian, when you go back to sin, you're making a choice. Now, so are unbelievers. But that's all they know. You know something better. You know something much better. And Paul is reminding them, how can we continue in sin if we're new and the old is dead? And here's how he wraps it up. For he who has died, verse 7, has been justified from sin. Now, I know most translations say set free. But the word here is dikaio. Dikaio means to be justified. It's an important word in the New Testament. It's where we build our doctrine of justification on that very thing. Every other time that Paul uses this word, it's translated as justified. This is the only place that translations struggle with what he's saying here. And so they go outside of the Bible and look at some other texts that use this word and try to figure out what he means. And then they put the word freed in. If this is freed, it's the only time he ever uses it like that. He's already used dikaio 11 times in Romans. And every single time he's talking about being justified. You're justified in Christ. God has justified you. He uses it total 25 times in his letters. Every other time, 
pretty much every translation says justified. That's why the LSB here goes with justified as the right, I believe, translation. And the only reason they put freed in there is because they struggle with what's happening, the theology of this. What does it mean? Paul's talking about sanctification. How can he go back and talk about justification? He's left that topic. They go together. They go together. They're both effects of being united with Christ. And what is he saying? We're no longer slaves to sin. How did that break with slavery to sin happen? It happened at the cross. It happened when Christ paid for our sin. It gets applied to us when we have faith. What do we call that when Christ's righteousness gets applied to us and our sin gets applied on his account? Justification. All he's saying here is the reason we're no longer slaves to sin is all the stuff I've already taught you about justification. He who has died, the person who's died to sin, who's died with Christ, spiritually speaking, we've died and become a new person now, raised in Christ. That person, the reason he's no longer a slave is that he's justified from sin. He's been declared righteous from sin. His relationship to sin has changed. Has your relationship to sin changed? As a Christian, you have to say yes. You may get frustrated. You may beat yourself up when you sin. And some of that's needed to grow. But Paul says, you're a new person. If you truly have faith, if you truly turn from your old ways of life and turn to him, then you're a new person. Those who died with Christ and are righteous are now able to be free from slavery to sin. Sometimes we sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And here's what he says. He breaks the power of canceled sin. You know what canceled sin is? Sin that's been forgiven. It's canceled. It's not on your account. It's been taken off your account. It has been canceled. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. He sets the prisoner free. The free part is no longer slaves to sin. He set us free. We're no longer slaves. His blood can make the foulest clean. How does this slavery to sin get accomplished? Through the blood of Christ, through his death on the cross. His blood availed for me. It's not just out there as as some reason that it happens, but it actually applies to me. His blood, his death was of great benefit to me. Second consequence now. We looked at the first one. We need to understand this old man. Secondly, our union with Christ and his resurrection has made us alive to God. Our union with Christ in his death, that was number one. It has broken the power of sin. Our union with Christ in his resurrection has made us alive to God. Some people think Christianity is all negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. This is sin. That's sin. You were a sinner. Look back and see how sinful you were. That's part of the story. You got to get to the bad news before you can get to the good news. But there's also the positive side. Yes, we have to turn from sin. When we come to Christ and we spend the rest of our life beating down that sin, we'll get to that in Romans 8. But there's this positive side. We're now alive to God. We didn't just turn away from something. We turned towards something or someone, you might say. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. We shall also live with him. The first part here, we died with Christ. That's what he said in verses 5 through 7. So that's his little phrase to summarize what he just said in verses 5 through 7. But now in 8 through 11, 
He's focusing on the consequences for us due to being united with Christ in his resurrection. If we died with Christ, it follows that we believe, we have faith, he says, we trust that we will live with him also. Now, he's already discussed the resurrection in verse 5. We will be raised with him. We will be made alive with him in verse 5. What is he getting at here? He seems to be saying the same thing. Now, though, he's talking about being made spiritually alive. And we know that through the context. He's going to talk about being alive to God, living for God in this life. So he's already talked about the resurrection. That's out there. That's the finish line. But we're running the race right now. And if we've died with Christ, spiritually speaking, we believe, we know that we are living or we will live throughout our life with him. We will live to God through Christ. We are truly alive in Christ. In other words, how can we go on sinning willfully if we're living for Christ, if we're living for God? How can you continue and sin so that grace may abound? It's not even something the Christian should think about. Here's how he backs it up. So the bondage to sin is broken. You can truly live for him now. Sometimes we we look over there and we want to put on those clothes, those prison clothes, but we can now truly live for him. And he says in verse 9, knowing that, he's going to explain it. And he's saying again, these things are all known by Christians. You can't really say that today. People don't know this. Back then they were taught the scripture from the apostles. Today we can't say, well, all Christians know this doctrine. All Christians understand this passage. All Christians have been taught the doctrines of justification and sanctification. Today, people aren't taught the Bible in many churches. You need to pray for them. You need to pray. I was just talking to somebody before the service. They were out for the holidays, and they said it's such a desert out there, spiritually speaking. You go talk with family members who say they're Christians, and they they don't have anything Christian to talk about. They don't know things. They haven't been taught. They're not in good churches. You go visit churches with family members, and you just kind of cringe at what's being said and sung about. But if we go back to the original here, the Bible, Paul says, knowing that. You can know that. Why? Because it's in Scripture, and he's teaching us this. We can know it. It just needs to be taught. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. This is just a fact. Just like the old man is dead, And there's a new man in Christ. Well, Christ has been raised from the dead. That means he'll never die again. He has a glorified body. Christians know this. Hebrews 10.10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He died once. He's raised again. He'll never, ever die again. Now that gives us hope right there. That gives us hope right there that if we're going to be resurrected like him, we don't have to worry about death. There is no more death in the eternal state. It's done away with. It's cast into the lake of fire, Revelation says. Also, if we just stop and think about the polemics of this verse, polemics is basically telling false believers the truth of scripture so they can be corrected. This verse is one of many that completely disproves the Roman Catholic Mass, where Christ is supposedly crucified every time the priest takes the elements and does what he does to them. Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he's never to die again. He can't die over and over in the Mass. 
billions of times every month around the world. It's not even possible. And yes, that is officially their teaching. Paul goes on, because Christ has died and has been raised and will never die again, he says, death no longer is master over him. Wait a second. Christ doesn't have any masters, does he? Paul, what are you saying here? Well, yeah, he took on flesh, didn't he? He humbled himself. He submitted himself and took on flesh. He was truly and fully human. He submitted himself to the effects of sin in the world. We know that he did because he was beaten. Why was he beaten? Because of sin in the world and sinners. He submitted himself even to death. He was killed, not because he was a sinner, but because he lived in the flesh in a sinful world. So his body could be killed. In that sense, Paul's saying, in that sense, that death was master over him. But not anymore. Why? Because he's been raised. He's been raised. He's been raised. There's no reason to even think that he could die again. Death was master over him in the sense that death hung over him until he was resurrected. But once he's resurrected, death had no rule over Christ. John Calvin says, by submitting to its dominion, as it were, for a moment, he destroyed death forever. He submitted himself to do the Father's will. The Father's will is that he go to the cross, that he die on the cross for sinners, that he be in the grave for three days and raised again. That way, death could be destroyed forever. Now, verse 10, Paul continues. He explains more here. For to death he died, he died to sin once for all. Now, Paul, you're getting even more controversial. You talked about death being master. Now you're saying Christ died to sin? It doesn't say for sin. It doesn't say he died for sin. We know that's true. He died for sinners. He died for sinners. But he died to sin. And all Paul's doing is connecting what we've already seen in chapter 5, that sin and death reign together. Sin and death are on the throne of the world. All that are in Adam are being ruled by sin and death. They're the two kings, the twin kings, if you want to say, sitting on the throne. And if death hung over him, then the effects of sin and the sinful world hung over him until he was raised again. He never sinned. He was perfectly righteous, but he submitted himself. He subjected himself to the effects of sin and the sin from others poured out on him. It's about authority. Remember he said to Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it has been given you from above. You would have no authority, but you do have some authority to take my life because God has given you that authority for now. Now when he's raised again, not possible. It'll never happen again. No one has that authority ever because he has a glorified body and he has now died to sin once for all. It has no effect on him. No sinful world, no sinful people can do anything to Christ. He's no longer subject to any of it. Leon Morris says Christ's death was unique. A once for all dealing with sin. God made him sin for us. That is in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him to be sin for us. He took on our sin. And Morris says his death dealt decisively with sin. It took it out of the way, paid its penalty, removed its sting, won the victory over it. Look at sin any way you will. Christ, though, has effectively dealt with it. If you're a believer in Christ, he's dealt with your sin. He's paid for it. 
He's freed you from slavery to it. How much better can it get? And there's a lot more in scripture about the effects of Christ's death for you. Paul's just covered the big ones so far. And all of that leads to his point here. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Yeah, he died. Yes, authority was given for a time when he was in his earthly ministry to the leaders to kill him. But now he's raised again and he lives a life. He lives it to God. He now lives his life for God. He glorified the Father in everything he did. Paul's not saying he didn't glorify God in his earthly ministry. But now with a resurrected body, there's no limits to the glorification of God in his body. The resurrection has given him new power to carry out God's eternal will and purpose. You read the Gospels, you see that Christ got tired. You see that he had to eat. You see that he was limited physically based on things. Yes, he could do miracles, but he didn't always do miracles. And then he's resurrected and suddenly he's in a locked room. How did he get in there? Suddenly those limitations are no longer there. And then verse 11, Paul comes now to an application of all of this. All that he said since verse 1 of chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're dead to sin. And you need to know it or remember it. Really, this is a summary of everything he's taught from the first verse of the letter. You know, it's his first command, first imperative. There'll be others later. This is the first one. He's been laying a doctrinal foundation since verse 1 of the book of Romans. People say doctrine's not important. Doctrine doesn't matter. Paul has spent six chapters teaching doctrine. So he could give this first imperative right here. Consider. Think about it. The word here is logizomai. That has two common meanings in scripture. One, to determine by a process, a mathematical process, to reckon, to calculate. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith. Christ's righteousness was put on Abraham's account. It's an accounting term. But now metaphorically, sometimes it is used to just speak of the mental thought process of reckoning and calculating, of thinking of things. To give careful thought to a matter. To consider it. To ponder it. To let your mind dwell on it. That's what Paul is doing here with Logizomai. Dwell on it. Think about it. This is where we get the English word logic from Logizomai. We get logical from that Greek word. Ponder it in your mind. Turn it over. Meditate on it. Think about this. Wake up to your present status. And then live in accord with it. You probably have heard... Live out who you already are. Be who you already are in Christ. This is not the power of positive thinking. This is not Robert Schuller, I think it was, who said, power of positive thinking. Just think about something and it's going to happen. Now it's called the word of faith. Just think about it enough. Tell yourself in front of the mirror every day who you are in Christ. And suddenly it'll become that. No, it's not that at all. He says, these are facts. I've already spent six chapters telling you the facts of who you are. You were this person, now you're this new person in Christ. Now the first step is to think about that, to consider it. That's important. 
You can't just go do, do, do unless you know exactly what the Bible teaches about who you are in Christ. We're not in slavery to sin. We're not the old man. This can only happen in Christ. Now, live like it. Don't make excuses. Oh, well, you know, I grew up and I was under this sinful household and I went into drugs and I did these sins. That's the old man. Maybe some of those temptations are still around. In the very next sermon, he's going to tell us what exactly we're to do with that. But don't make excuses. We're a new person in Christ. The Bible is here to help you. The first step, though, he says, is consider it. Think about it. How do we do that? Well, here's some application. How do we do that? First of all, you need to study and, and just study this passage. Go home and, and think about what this sermon. Think about what the passage has said from verse 1. Who you are in Christ. Get out some commentaries. You want to study it more. Pick up Martin Lloyd-Jones. a whole volume just on Romans 6. You'll have to read 100 pages just to cover the few verses I'm preaching on today. Think about it. Meditate on it. Then you have to believe that it's true. You have to believe that it's true. You can't just study all the time and not believe God's word. You can't say, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I trusted in Christ. I turned from my sins. But sometimes I just struggle and I fall back into sin. Paul says the old man is dead. If you died with Christ, the old man's dead. And you're a new person in Christ. And you're alive to God. That's what he says. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. He took all that teaching about Christ and he's applied it now to the believer. Also remind yourself of this truth over and over in your daily life. Just think about it in your mind. And say it out loud sometimes if you need to. You know, Martin Luther supposedly threw the inkwell at the devil when the devil was trying to convince him of the fact that he would be cast out of the kingdom. Remind yourself of this truth. Preach the gospel to yourself. Remember also, remember this truth when you're at the moment of temptation. When you're being pulled into sin, remember. You've studied it. You believe that it's true. You've told yourself over and over who you are in Christ. You're united with him. You can't be that old person. And now bring it up at that moment. How can I do this sin that I'm contemplating when I know I'm someone new in Christ? The fifth application of your daily life, have some verses like these ready as your sword of the Spirit. Don't just remind yourself in your own words. Do it in God's Word. Consider it. Think about it from God's Word. Memorize verses like Ephesians 4, like Colossians 3. Like Romans 12, like Romans 6, 12 through 14 that we're going to look at next week. Memorize these and pull them up as a weapon to fight off the schemes of the devil. That's how we consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And it's only in Christ Jesus. It's only in him. You can't do this unless you're in Christ Jesus. You are battling the old man because you're still the old man if you're not in Christ Jesus. There's nothing you can do except try to go get some therapy, some help. And in a couple of days, you'll do fine. The next day, you go right back into it. Or you pick another sin and run off into that. And today, they just tell you, go ahead and sin as much as you want to sear your conscience. It's only your parents and your preachers who told you that was sinful. It never works. You got to be a new person in Christ. You got to have faith in him to ever be changed, really changed. So let's pray now that we would as Christians, continue to meditate, think about, consider this, reckon on this. And then we're going to celebrate all of these truths in the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray that you would help us through your spirit working in us. Remind us who we are in Christ. You've done so in the Bible. Now just give us 
that uh, memory of this text and what's been said in this sermon that's helpful, Lord. Help us to apply this to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives. We must live for you. We cannot continue in sin. So I pray that everyone would do that here as we, as we consider his death for us, as we consider his resurrection, as we consider the fact that we're joined with him. He is with us. The Apostle Paul said we would never take Christ, would we, into a, to a prostitute's place? Help us to be pure and holy and give us so much, Lord, in the way of your grace when we do fall. Help us to get back up, lift us up, put us back on the right path. Let us continue on in our walk until the final day when we're resurrected in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.